Today we begin a new series for the new year. Begin a study about Christ and His life. And we study different parts of it. Now we're looking at some of His statements and little short sermons. Things that He said and how instructive they are to us. Our text will be in Mark chapter 2 today. Referring to a couple other passages as we go through. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 2. I love to talk about Christ. I talk about Him almost half of the year. And uh, I do it all, I'd rather do it all the time. <laughs> There's no more exciting person, no more instructive thing than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. As it teaches us about Jesus and who he is and what he did. So, he's a fascinating character and I hope we can be inspired by it and learn from what we read. My mother was a very rational person. She was logical by nature. And she had a common sense approach to life. My father was not. (laughs) As long as she was around, she kept things on an even keel. But when she died, my father reverted back to his somewhat illogical ways. And I remember I went to see him. Out on the front porch was a five-gallon bucket full of water. And I could see that in the water-filled bucket was clothes. So I asked him, what do you got in the five-gallon bucket? And he said, I'm doing my laundry and I'm washing my clothes. So, naturally I asked, do you have laundry soap in the bucket? And he said, yeah, I'm washing my clothes with laundry soap. So, the next logical question that I would ask was, now just five feet away inside the door is a brand new washing machine and a dryer. So I asked him, why don't you use the new washing machine and the dryer? He replied, I'm saving electricity. (laughs) So I decided to try to explain a little more to him. And I said, now, the washing machine will wash your clothes. But then it rinses the soap out of your clothes and the dirt, too. And your five-gallon bucket won't rinse out your clothes. So you're never going to get laundry soap out of your clothes in that bucket. So what I would do would be go five feet in the door and use the new washing machine. And I left it at that. Well, a few days later, I went to see him again, and this time he had two five-gallon buckets on the porch. (laughs) (laughs) And he said proudly to me, that bucket is for washing clothes, and that one is for rinsing clothes. So it was, my point to him was that he should use the brand new washing machine just inside the door. But when he applied his own logic to the situation, he just added a second bucket and felt that his problem was solved. The logical solution use the new washing machine, was not applied. He applied his own logic 
and added a second bucket on the porch. Mom never would have allowed buckets of clothes on the porch. Now in our text today, we will examine logic and we will try to make sense out of what happens in a logical way. Logic is a useful thing. Before I start, I want to pose a question to you for your consideration. I'd like you to consider this question. What I would like to know is very simply this. Why do you believe in Jesus? What's your reason for believing in Jesus? And you might answer me, I just believe. I never really thought about it. And I accept that answer. I accept that answer. But I still think we need to consider the question, why do you believe in Jesus? Is there a logic that you have chosen and a reasonable approach that supports your belief? Now, in Jesus' lifetime, that question was a very important question discussed by many people. And in our story, we find Jesus answering the question, why do you believe? Why? Or why do you not believe in me? So in our text, as the story unfolds, there are two situations that develop simultaneously. First, Mark chapter 2, verse number 1. And again he entered into Capernaum after some days, and it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together, insomuch that there was no room to receive them, no, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. So Jesus is preaching inside of a house, and people come, the house fills up and actually begins to overflow with people who come to hear Jesus. It's very crowded. They're pushing themselves almost out the door. Now, Dr. Luke, who tells the same story, adds another detail to the story. Let's see what he says in Luke 5, in verse number 17. It came to pass on a certain day, as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So Jesus is preaching in the house, a house that's very full now. And uh, part of the crowd that filled the house up were Pharisees and scribes, those are doctors of the law. These men were experts in the Old Testament. And I'm sure all of them knew the book of Psalms by heart. I'm sure every one of them knew that. And probably most of them knew the book of Exodus and Leviticus by heart. Any of you can make any of those claims? They were educated. And as a result of their studies, they also knew all the prophecies about the coming Messiah. Now, hearing 
that <coughs> this man from Galilee, Jesus of Nazareth, was preaching and gathering loud, large crowds. They come to hear him speak from all around the area. And as soon as he opens his mouth, they had already come to a conclusion. The common people that hear Jesus are gossiping amongst themselves all over Israel, saying, I wonder if Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah. But these scribes and Pharisees, they know better. And as soon as Jesus opens his mouth, they immediately think, no, this can't be the Messiah. This is not him. Why? Why come to that conclusion? All the scribes and the Pharisees know that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem because the Old Testament prophet said, out of thee, Bethlehem, will come the ruler of my people. And as soon as Jesus opened his mouth, they hear his Galilean accent. After all, he goes by the name Jesus of Nazareth. He's not from Bethlehem in Judea. He's not from either of those places. He's from Nazareth. It's a logical conclusion. However... If a person came to our church and listened to me and I said, well, I grew up on Sour Springs Road, just two roads west of here. I went to school in Oakfield and I spent a lot of my early years running around the Alabama swamps. Anyone who heard me would naturally assume I was born right here in western New York. And from the stories I tell, they would never conclude that I came from anywhere else. But the fact is, I was born in a little town called Sharon in Connecticut. This is the same thing with Jesus. We know from reading Dr. Luke's careful account of the birth of Christ, that he was born in Bethlehem, and we also know the reasons for his being born there. But the people of his day, listening to him speak, only knew he had a Galilean accent and he was raised in Nazareth and they called him Jesus of Nazareth. So their natural response was, he can't be the Messiah, he comes from Nazareth. A wrong conclusion. So let's go on, Mark chapter 2 now, again. Verse 3. And they come unto him, bringing one sick of the palsy, which was born of four. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was. When they had broken it up, they let down the bed therein where the sick of the palsy lie. And when Jesus saw their faith, he saith to the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And there were certain of the scribes sitting there reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? 
And so approaching the house where Jesus is inside preaching, we see four men carrying a stretcher. And on the stretcher is a man described as being sick of the palsy. Now, for whatever reason, we don't know the exact reason. Could have been arthritis, could have been an injury, could have been a degenerative disease like something like Lou Gehrig's. Uh, This man cannot walk, and he looks like people who are in that same condition. From lack of use, the muscles have atrophied, and there appears to be just skin and bones, no muscles. And they call it palsy. He can't walk. And as they approach the house, the crowds of people have filled up the doorways, and they are packed in so tight, there is no way to get the man on the stretcher into Jesus. So these rather ingenious fellows carry the stretcher up onto the roof. People uh, used their flat roofs in those days as porches where you could sit outside in the evening. So there would always be a set of stairs going up to the roof. So up on the roof, they carry the stretcher. They begin to pull off the roofing material, and they make a hole in the roof. And using ropes... They lower the man down through the hole right in front of where Jesus is preaching. It's one of those interruptions that happens in a service sometimes. We've had a few in my time. I remember when we first started here holding services in the church, the raccoons had been living here for 30 years and we had a hard time evicting them. Uh, and I started the service. We sang the first song. I was right here. And I heard when they finished the raccoon up in the attic caught in a trap, flopping back and forth. So I said, excuse me a minute. <laughs> I ran upstairs and I shot the raccoon. <laughs> and I came down. I resumed the service. Just one of those interruptions that come during a service. Now, Jesus had a real interruption that day. (laughs) People removing the roof and dropping a man down from the ceiling on a stretcher. I'd call that a real (laughs) disturbance. Of course, everybody's attention is now on a stretcher that's coming down from the ceiling. It's a wonderful moment in the story of Jesus' life. Now, as the man comes into sight and he gets low enough, people can see him. Everyone can clearly see he's crippled. He can't walk. He can barely move. He's so crippled. But I want you to notice very carefully. Jesus can see things that we can't see. Jesus can see this man has two diseases, not one. And Jesus can see something. You notice in verse 5 it says, Jesus saw their faith. I didn't know you could see faith down deep inside. But Jesus can see it. And notice what Jesus can see. The man has two diseases. One is a crippling one. He cannot walk. 
But the other one is much more deadly. He has unforgiven sin. And my friends, there is nothing more deadly than that. Not cancer. Not COVID. Unforgiven sin can kill your soul. It is much more dangerous than COVID. Much more. And so Jesus, being the great physician, decides to treat the deadliest disease first. Now Jesus can read what's in people's hearts. He can read their minds. As a crippled man comes into sight, he can look into his eyes and he sees fear. I'm afraid. Jesus will know I'm a sinner. And Jesus, reading his thoughts, says, Son... Your sins are forgiven you. Why? Why does he say that? Because it says he saw that inside his heart, and the four men also holding the ropes, inside their hearts was faith. They believed that Jesus could help. And when faith exists, forgiveness can follow. So notice carefully, pay close attention to this. Jesus can read what's inside of the man's heart on the stretcher. And he sees and he reads his heart. Here is a very essential point in the story. It was generally believed by people in that day that when the Messiah would come, he would know all things. Messiah would come and reveal all truth. Now it comes from a host of different sources through the Old Testament. And these fellows were experts in the Old Testament. And if you listen to it in Psalm 139, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting, my uprising. Thou understandest my thought. Afar off, thou compasses my path and my lying down are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word in my tongue, but, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Daniel the prophet would repeat the idea. He said, there is a God in heaven that reveals secrets. Now you may recall... One of Jesus' disciples, whose name was Nathaniel, was told by Philip, we found the Messiah, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he responded just like described in the Pharisees. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And then he met Jesus. And Jesus walked up to Nathaniel and he said, I saw you. When you were sitting under the fig tree. What he meant of course is that he read Nathaniel's thoughts. In a private moment when Nathaniel thought he was all by himself. Under a fig tree thinking. And Nathaniel said. You are the son of God. Because you can read my thoughts. You also recall the woman at the well. After a conversation with Jesus, 
And she goes back into town and tells the people, come see a man who told me my whole life he has got to be Messiah. He told me everything I ever did. And so the common belief was that the Messiah would come, know all things, read your mind, know all about you when he comes. So Jesus read the mind of the crippled man and his four friends. And he saw the fear of the sinner and he saw the faith of all five men and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, sometimes when you're preaching, there's people in the congregation who may not agree with what you say. That's the nature of preaching. And sitting in the house that day are a group of scribes and Pharisees, experts in the Old Testament. And when Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven, they think quietly in their minds, only God can forgive sin. They don't say it out loud. They think it in their minds. And of course, in one sense of the word, they are correct. It is a true statement that only God can forgive sins. But to that logical idea, the scribes and Pharisees have applied some of their own logic. Like solving your laundry problem with two buckets, okay? They've already made up their minds that this Jesus of Nazareth cannot possibly be the Messiah. After all, he comes from Nazareth. Flawed logic because they never considered the possibility he could be born in Bethlehem and grow up somewhere else. So that was flawed logic. Secondly, They also have an opinion that the Messiah, when he comes, would come from their own ranks. After all, they were the religious leaders of Israel. They ran all the schools and colleges. They taught all the classes. And this Jesus of Nazareth didn't attend any of our schools. Therefore, we can only conclude that this Jesus of Nazareth, not being a scribe or a Pharisee, one of us, cannot possibly be the Messiah. So as they apply their flawed logic to the case in front of them, when they say only God can forgive sins, what they mean is this Jesus of Nazareth, this Galilean preacher has no right to tell that crippled man that his sins are forgiven. Only God can do that, and we know he's not God. Now remember... All those thoughts that this Jesus of Nazareth can forgive sins have not been spoken out loud. Only thought and reasoned out quietly in their own minds. They never said anything out loud. And then Jesus turns right to them, looks them right in the eye, and says, why are you thinking those thoughts in your mind? (laughs) Hold it. Stop right there. How does Jesus know what they're thinking if they never expressed their thoughts? 
Every Jew believed when Messiah comes, he'll know everything and he'll be able to, like God, look into your thoughts. There's not a word, like it says in the psalm, in your tongue that he doesn't know before you say it. If Jesus just read their minds, and he clearly did, is he not Messiah? That would be a logical conclusion. But the scribes and the Pharisees applied their own flawed logic to the situation, already deciding that Jesus is not the Messiah. And that is why I started with the question, why do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a logical reason? Have you thought it through carefully? Or could it be you have your own logic are there two buckets on your porch? <laughs> Jesus will now solve the whole issue like he so often does. Verse 8. Immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said to them, Why reason ye these things in your heart? Whether it is easier to say to the sick of the palsy, Thy sons be for, sins be forgiven thee, or say, Arise, take up thy bed, and walk. So he puts to them a question for their logic. Which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven, or to say get off that stretcher and walk. You answer the question. You answer that question that Jesus put. Naturally, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. People say it all the time. Priests in a confessional say, say four Hail Marys and I'll absolve you from your sin. When your sins are forgiven, you don't suddenly change color. You know, your hair doesn't turn white. Your eyes don't change. You look the same. So anyone can say, your sins are forgiven you and there's no proof that they're right or wrong, is there? But if you say that man on that stretcher, get up and walk, that's a whole other story. You can tell right away if he gets up or not. Either he sits up and puts his feet on the ground and walks away, or you are a failure. Great logic on Jesus' part, is it not? Obvious proof. Verse 10. That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, Arise, take up thy bed, and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed, went forth from before them all. Insomuch they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw it on this fashion. So Jesus says, Arise. Roll up your bed and walk home. No therapy. No building up the muscles. No lameness. No limp. 
But with perfect legs and feet, he stands up, rolls up his bed, tosses it on his shoulder, and pushes his way through the crowd and goes out the door. Logical conclusion? Only God can do that. So we apply Jesus' logic now to it all. Jesus can make the crippled man walk. Jesus can read your mind and see your thoughts. Jesus can see your faith. Therefore, he must be God. Leading to the next logical conclusion, Jesus has the power to forgive sins from right here on earth. Because he is the Son of God. He is Messiah. So note carefully the response to all this excitement as the crippled man comes off the stretcher, rolls it up, puts it on his shoulder, and walks out the door. The crowd has said, glorified God. Or they said, God sure enough did that. God did that. And they said this, we never saw it on this fashion Or in other words, nobody else ever did anything like that. And that, my friends, is why we believe in Jesus. He did what nobody else could do. Nobody else could make a body whole with one sentence... Nobody else could make that crippled man just get up and walk. We believe in Jesus because he did what nobody else could do. Nobody before or since. You've never seen it in that fashion before. He must be God in the flesh here on earth reading your thoughts, healing the crippled legs, and most of all, my friends, for you and I, best of all, especially for people like you and I, forgiving our sins right here on earth. Here we are, living our lives down here in this crazy world, on this planet, every day, people living everyday lives, and Jesus can forgive us right here, right now, because the only logical conclusion is that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins on earth. Happy day, we sing happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. He taught me how to watch and pray and live rejoicing every day. Happy day, happy day, Jesus washed my sins away. So one more time. Why do you believe in Jesus? Because he did what nobody else could do. He must be the Son of God. Thank you, Jesus, for your rational mind and your flawless logic. And through it, it builds our faith and it helps us to put our trust more and more in Jesus Christ. And that's what we need today more than anything else. Put our faith more and more in Jesus Christ. Trust him. 
you'll find that's the best thing you can do. And why should you do it? Because he can do what nobody else can do. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the lesson you taught us. Thank you for the logic you have applied to our hearts. We're glad to know why we believe. We're glad to have confidence in you and faith in you that will change our lives, that will take us through stormy days and unusual ways that we can have a great confidence in God and a boundless faith that will make us go on and on and never turn back. Help us, Lord, that we might believe in you with all our hearts and be totally convinced and be persuaded that you are who you say you are and we can trust you with all our hearts. Bless us, Lord, as we take these thoughts into our minds. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. In closing, I'd like you to turn your hymn books, if you will, page number one in your hymn books. Page number one in your hymn books in closing. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. Standing as we sing hymn number one, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Page number one. grateful that you can break the power of canceled sin, that you can forgive us, and that you have all the power in heaven and earth to do that, that you have promised to do that if we but just confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you for that promise, and we thank you that 
despite the hardships and the things that may come in this earth, you have cared and you have known about all that we are going through. You will be next to us and walk with us through every step. We are grateful for that. We ask for all of those uh, people here in this place, protect them, be with them, bring them back safe to this place. And those who are listening at home and other places, Lord, we just pray that you would put your healing hand on everyone. Bring them back to this place. In your name, amen. amen.